Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Imran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by specialist risk groups Chris Lennon, Aviva's Stephen Ridley, and DAC Beechcroft's Hansa Allnuts to talk about supercharging take-up of the cyber insurance. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Chris Lennon, Director of Sales and Development for Specialist Risk Group, Stephen Ridley, Head of Cyber at Aviva, and Hans Allnut, who leads DAC Beechcroft Cyber Risk and Breach Response Team. They are going to share their expert views on cyber insurance, plus some advice on how to increase take-up of this cover. Hi, Chris, Stephen and Hans. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hello, Emma. Hi, Emma. So, given that a business can take all the protective measures available to it and there will always be a risk that a cyber attack will succeed, um, Stephen, what is the current appetite among insurers to provide this type of cover? So there's still really strong appetite from insurers to be writing cyber business across the board. It's undoubtedly a market that has had some challenges over the last um, few years as the market has reacted to uh, the increase in ransomware claims and there is an increasing focus on making sure that customers are doing the absolute basics to protect themselves. But if they are meeting kind of those absolute basics, then there is a really strong market still out there to be providing cover to those insureds. Stephen, would you agree the appetite's there and is it sufficient for the um, need for this type of cover? So I'd say it is, yeah. Part of the challenge is still educating customers around the need for there to be buying this cover. It's still a really small proportion of customers that are buying specific cover. And there's also the challenge that there's a bit of a mismatch of expectations at times in that customers can still believe that they are covered by other insurance products and, and not by the specific cover. Uh, so we did a survey a few weeks ago um, that looked at exactly this and only 8% of customers bought a specific cyber insurance product. I think it's about 12% bought a specific section within a, a wider product. But then there was another 20% or so that thought that their general insurance policies would protect them and a further proportion that thought that their MSP, their managed service provider, would provide some cover for them, which I mean, I haven't seen any examples of where that does happen. So I'd be really surprised if any of those businesses are getting protection there. So if there were to be an event, there's this real risk that companies think they have the cover there, but they actually don't. So there's still a slight um, education gap around that. Chris, what, what's your thoughts on the current appetite among insurers to provide cyber insurance? I mean, largely, I agree with what Stephen's just said. The There, there is certainly an appetite um, from underwriters to, to, to write this. Penetration remains low. I mean, within our business and from what we're seeing generally in terms of the research out there, that it, it is hovering around that 10% mark. Um, so 90% of businesses aren't, aren't protecting themselves as they could be. Um, one of the things that the pandemic has shown is that you know businesses previously would have dismissed cyber on the basis that they didn't feel that they were a digital business. And I think there's been a realisation that due to the pandemic and you know an adoption of agile working an adoption of technology um, uh, it's accelerated digital take up that, that all these businesses regardless of trade or industry are certainly digitally dependent to some extent and it's more around awareness um, and housekeeping so things multi-factor authentication for instance right now is is no longer a, a nice to have it's 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 a from a risk perspective a must have um, and again pick up one of Stephen's points I think the, the challenge that we have as a broker community is making sure that we understand and can articulate 
to a layman the risks that are necessary and that should be transferred because you know relying on a cyber liability extension of a professional financial risks package isn't going to afford them the protection that they'd be getting from a proper cyber and crime policy. Hans, would you agree the appetite among insurers has grown as the awareness among businesses has increased that you know this isn't something for just um, a company that's tech focused it's a company with any focus basically in 2023? Yes, I think the appetite's always there. It's then the risk selection within that. And um, Chris has mentioned before some of the controls around uh, MFA uh, and the risk selection around those policyholders that have put those basic controls in place. It's an interesting question in that you you sort of pose it to the insurers as to, given that any company can be hacked, is there still an appetite? When in actual fact, that should really go to emphasise that a policyholder should buy cyber because even though they put cyber protections in place, they can still get hacked and therefore, what's the, the backup plan for that? Well, that is exactly where the insurance product should sit. So in some ways, the question really should be supercharging the, the, the take-up of cyber insurance. Mm. And on that note, I mean, in terms of you know the evolving threat that's being posed by fraudsters today, Hans, how is the cyber insurance market evolving to keep up with that threat? Well, it's always been a um, growing market, has done for the last 20 years, and it's continuously changing. Um, at both ends of the scale, from the micro SME to the large scale, um, especially on the sort of cap risks as we've seen recently. The product itself, I think, has evolved in extending coveraging, uh, extending coverages, sorry, um, in terms of the uh, basic policies. But I think, uh, as Chris has alluded to, some of the controls and risk selection is uh, the, the, the major change we've seen in the last 12, 12 months. And whilst that might be seen as a reflection on appetite or a change in readiness to, to underwrite risks, it's actually what the market industry and countries have been waiting for because a lot of observers have looked to the cyber insurance market around um, enhancing security measures, um, setting minimum standards, being part of the cyber security story. The soft market hasn't really permitted that and now we're in an era where actually not only can the cyber insurance market provide value through uh, redundancy and indemnity, it can provide value through awareness and education. I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Mm, definitely. Stephen, how have Aviva been evolving their cover to you know, keep up with the fraudsters, essentially, or, or go beyond where they're at? So it's a really good question, and it, it's something that's always at the forefront of our minds. Um, uh, Amanda, our CEO, came out this year and said that this is the year of the customer for Aviva, um, and putting the customer right at the centre of what we're doing is core across all of our products, and it's something that we're considering from a cyber perspective as well, kind of making sure that the products that we're delivering today are, are fit for purpose, um, not just for the risks that companies are seeing today or yesterday, but but what might happen down the line. Um, one of the things that we're considering as part of that is not just how do we need to evolve the product and keep broadening the cover because the reality is that the, the cover is already pretty broad and most things um, I think are, are covered within the policy the most types of things that would be expected to be covered are dealt with within the policy but one of the um, one of the byproducts that we've seen of market conditions over recent years having come from a, a really soft market where cover has um, exploded and gone really broad to then a really hard market where price has gone significantly northwards is now in most instances customers are, are left with a, a decision of either buying a real premium product or no product at all um, so they either have to pay um, 
pay the amount for that premium product or go uninsured tends to be the, the choice that a customer has. So one of the things that we're looking at is how can we offer differentiated products for different market segments, perhaps where uh, a business that doesn't need that full premium product can have access to to something that gives the, the basics of cover, the, the fundamental elements that are required from a product and pay a, a much more affordable premium as a result. They still have the option of, of buying the premium product if they, if they want that, um, but getting something that is accessible, getting that first foot on the ladder and getting some form of protection there is, is one of the things that we're looking at. Um, and the other element is is less around the product development, but also how we support our brokers being our primary customer base or our primary way of interacting with customers. So we're investing a lot in terms of people, so bringing in specific underwriters to deal with educating our brokers, helping them gain more confidence in having the conversation with customers and making sure that as many of those customers are protected in some form or another as possible. Chris, what's your view in terms of how the market's evolved? Would you agree that there's fewer accessible products perhaps for people today? Um, I, I wouldn't say there are fewer accessible products. Um, I think Stephen's point is that everybody seems to have um, taken a similar approach in terms of their product offering and there are fewer differentiators unless you start analysing or critiquing wordings. So the, the heads of cover, the features and benefits are are pretty consistent across all of the markets that we access. What does differentiate the markets that we engage with is the amount of proactive support that they provide us as brokers and, and in turn to our clients. In terms of education, risk awareness, um, something we're doing is, is subscribing to a, um, a cyber threat intelligence system where we're able to identify for our clients proactively and ahead of getting a quotation what the potential threat vectors could be and vulnerabilities are in their system. And then you add on to that sort of human factors of, of risk. Um, and we're able to say to a client, look, you know, here are potential threats to your business. Here are areas where um, a hacker or threat actor or, or could, could, could exploit something. And then add to that, you know, people make mistakes and data breaches occur. Um, and, you know, you haven't spent a lot of time in training your people or investing in your technology. And that presents a risk. So if we address some of this low-hanging fruit, what we can do is we can come up with one, prevention better than cure approach so because removing the the, the obvious and, and likely threats but also then building a safety net of insurance and what we're also seeing as well is that the the complementary support that we're seeing from underwriters in not only breach response so trying to mitigate against lasting reputational harm you know th these services are evolving and getting better and the specialist providers that they engage are certainly getting um, more sophisticated but there's also support around helping clients improve their data security environment and helping them achieve better sort of data compliance. So Chris, what are the different approaches that I feel you've touched on some of them there, the different approaches that businesses are taking to buying cyber insurance? Is it very much looking for not simply the nature of coverage, but also the level of support that is there if things do go wrong? Um, it, it's a really good question. I mean, I think it, it depends on on the client and the industry. So some businesses are accelerating their adoption of cyber um, because there is a there is a compliance or a contractual need for them to do so. 
So, you know, increasingly uh, tendering um, various frameworks for people to subscribe to work is increasingly having a requirement for people to demonstrate that they are cyber aware and that there is an element of protection there. Um, you know, the, the supply chain risk to larger organisations is significant. And those larger organisations having experienced significant losses are looking to trying to mitigate and, and, and shore up some of those exposures. So we're seeing some compliance-driven purchasing of, of cyber and as a result people are buying something almost as a as a reluctant purchase because I have to have it um, we've got those in certain industries that are you know fair to say are ahead of the curve professional financial services where they understand the valuable um, of the value of, of the intangible and their brand and reputation and what that lasting reputational damage could mean to them and as a consequence they are a bit more forward-thinking in terms of you know selection of product choice of limits the support and and they're, I would imagine Stephen would agree that you know sometimes from the underwriting perspective they're they're more desirable risks because they're just further along that 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 period of evolution. And then we've got other businesses which see this as a risk concern but don't feel that it's in their top ten yet. And it's down to us as a business to try and educate them that actually, do you know what the the threat of somebody turning up with a with a transit van and stealing all your computers is is minimal compared to the threat of losing the data or the IP that sits on them. Stephen, would you agree that the approaches, uh, different approaches that are taken, are very much determined by where, how, what they view the risk to be to their individual business? Definitely, yeah. And I think that the final point that Chris made there is is a really important one in that um, that people are kind of in oh, humans are creatures of habit, right? People have bought um, property insurance, have bought liability insurance forever and a day. Kind of, they have companies have their suite of insurances and they've probably bought the same thing for the last 20 years at, at times if not more and, and cyber seen as this new thing and there can be this thought of well I've gone 20 years without it you know why why need it now but actually to another point that Chris made earlier on around the pandemic and how that's brought to life how much more digital businesses are now cyber does present a much more critical risk for almost every business now and we're at a time where you almost need to hit the reset button on on that insurance program particularly when um, insurance premiums are generally going up across the board not just in cyber but with inflation being as high you know buildings insurance is going up content insurance is going up so there needs to be a more or it needs to be wound back to basics and a, a bit more of a grown-up conversation around where are the areas of risk that are most important to a business and how can you set up an insurance program that, that best meets those needs in the most cost-efficient way possible. And at times that might mean sacrificing some other elements of cover to, to make more room for the spend for, for cyber cover. But that then becomes a much more mature conversation to be having. It is a difficult conversation. I, I absolutely appreciate that for, for brokers and customers to have. And one of the things that, that we're focused on is being able to provide that support to brokers to have a more informed conversation around those areas. Hans, what different approaches are you say, seeing in terms of the way businesses are taking to buying cyber insurance? Are they ready for those more mature conversations? So I see it from the direct client, obviously, as a lawyer servicing existing clients. So over the last few years, we've seen clients come to us directly uh, for engagement for breach response services, but also through the insurance chain. Um, it's been interesting the last year because some people have decided that uh, either they are unable to secure insurance because of the minimum security standards or due to the hard, harder market, which is now softened, but the initial stage of that harder market would come to us direct. Interestingly, I would always put a positive spin on that. The fact that uh, people are unable to either renew or purchase cyber insurance 
compared to five years ago when the market was trying to explain what exactly the product was and why people should be purchasing it is, is actually, a, you know, if you look at the grand scheme of things, a positive step that people want to buy it but can't. And now the, the market's um, softening a bit and, and, and people you know, that, that are overcoming those uh, issues um, it is a good sign in some respects. When you look at the approaches and I look at our direct clients, it's, I always find it quite interesting to understand who the buyer is. And it, it comes into, I think, what, what Chris was saying earlier in terms of um, some have to buy because of a contractual requirement. Then otherwise, is it an insurance purchase? Is it an IT purchase? Um, is it the general counsel buying for a privacy risk? Where does the budget sit? I don't have all the answers to those questions, uh, but it is interesting that um, I think for, compared to any other insurance product, you need in a medium-to-large business those stakeholders in, in purchasing it. So the approaching, approaches to purchasing cyber insurance should typically involve all those elements of a business um, compared to a, a, another uh, line of insurance. Uh, and we do see that you know, um, on um, after a policy has been placed and we've been introduced to the policyholder, those um, stakeholders at the client participate on those calls and want to know what's going to happen in the event of a, a claim and a breach. And what role, um, Hans, what role did GDPR have in changing attitudes towards cyber insurance? Huge, actually. I can speak from experience as a team that responds to uh, breaches. We went from a team of uh, around three or four uh, dedicated lawyers to um, between now 15 and 20 um, since GDPR has come into effect. Um, Pre-GDPR, um, you looked at cyber insurance, it grew out of the US and California, and it was fundamentally a breach response product and the change of the laws in California. Um, it expanded into Europe in anticipation of GDPR, but until GDPR came into effect, a lot of uh, clients just simply didn't know about breach response, reporting requirements, regulatory reporting requirements, what's the consequences of having a breach. GDPR came into force in 2016, didn't come into effect in 2018 to give everyone a two-year lead time. So it still took some time uh, for businesses who had breaches to realise they actually had to do something about it because before that they could simply have a breach, not tell anyone about it and, and, and keep it quiet. But post-2018, suddenly you have uh, mandatory reporting requirements, which means you've got to investigate with forensics, and if you don't, you have this propensity for a final regulatory sanction which could be up to 4% of annual worldwide turnover which was huge. The fines were great in terms of putting numbers on the consequences of a breach under GDPR to focus people's attentions. In truth they've been a red herring because there actually haven't been that many fines um, but the costs of responding to a breach, the regulatory compliance and the specific references to compensation claims for individuals who simply uh, suffer distress and should be entitled to compensation have all grown the risk and exposure that companies have experienced and added to the whole um, implications of the GDPR and that risk is best insured against by a cyber insurance product which is built around those first party costs and expenses of the incident response and those third-party liabilities that could occur, could, could occur under the GDPR rather than, say, relying on a, another line of liability insurance which covers some but not all aspects of that uh, breach. So GDPR has been absolutely massive as it was in the US in, in changing the dollars to the value of cyber insurance in the UK. Stephen, is that something you, you saw at Aviva in terms of GDPR basically putting rocket fuel under the takeoff of the cyber insurance market? 
So it wasn't the, the rocket fuel in terms of take up that, that some thought it might be in terms of people buying more insurance as a result. Um, it's definitely, to Hans's point, it kind of raised the bar in terms of the um, some of the additional challenges and costs that are then incurred if there, if there is a breach. And that helps to really focus the minds of, of people once they've had some breaches. And that in part... Um, did have an impact on the market conditions that we've seen over the last few years. Um, a lot gets made of the fact of, of ransomware and systems being encrypted and the business interruption losses. But one of the additional byproducts that we've seen um, through the, the evolution of ransomware is, is the exfiltration of data as well. So ransomware went from being an event that was causing business interruption losses and system damage to also causing like these mass data breaches as well. and part of the increase in cost that was seen from those incidents was having to go through the rigmarole of investigating what data had been um, taken or impacted by the event, which data subjects were impacted, how we needed to notify those data subjects and the regulators. And we did for a spell see a a huge amount of of data breach litigation starting. That has tapered off in the last um, year to 18 months or so with some some of the legal cases that we've seen in the courts. But it did have a, a massive part in ramping up the increase in um, in claim cost from about 2018 to 2020 in particular. Um, but in terms of companies saying yeah, GDPR is this big thing, we need to buy insurance against that, we saw some of it. But it, yeah, to say it was rocket fuel for the industry when we're still at 10% penetration, um, yeah, I think obviously uh, not quite the case. Possibly lighter fuel instead of rocket fuel, fuel, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Chris, what what did you see in terms of the impact of GDPR on attitudes towards cyber insurance? Um, I I largely agree with what Hans and Stephen have said. I mean, it it undoubtedly accelerated the amount of litigation and activity, um, including claims farming activity. You know, you would have seen things around the BA data breach and the Marriott data breach where there was you know, targeted online advertising to encourage claimants to come forward. Um, It's unquestionably increased the costs involved in managing a data breach. Um, And with, coupled with the evolution in in the risk and and the landscape that we've mentioned already, you know, it, it it has really kind of changed the way that cyber should be viewed. I think one of the problems is that, you know, GDPR was a the buzzword that everybody was talking about to some extent, and I think clients, you know, businesses were, were getting a bit jaded, um, and there was a bit of GDPR fatigue. And also, I think we were articulating in a method that we were always referencing what to, you know, a mid market or an SME business would would be unrealistic and and unexpected and 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 not relevant claims examples. Things like Carphone Warehouse and Talk Talk, where really we should be talking about right these are the consequences and this is relevant for you and this is the amount of time it will take up and this is what you will be required to do and this is what non-compliance would mean for your business and and modeling that in terms of real world experience and expertise um but what it did do is it brought and and shown a light on cyber as a risk class for brokers who previously would have said actually this is something that is you know inherent within professional financial risks and is perhaps not referenced or relevant to a to a haulier or a builder or a manufacturing business so i think i think it was the start of a conversation and a journey that's taken us to this point where now i think cyber features quite high on all our clients risk registers regardless of size sophistication or industry 
uh, as you've touched on there, Chris, it's so important for the companies to understand the individual risks they face. How important do you feel cyber risk scenario an- analysis is in helping companies understand their individual exposure? Um, I think it's very important for the right businesses, for, for those businesses that that will adopt that in terms of a, a risk management approach that will, will will view their risk in the round. I think that is that's very valid. But I think for some businesses, um, they're they're very focused on on the meat and drink of what it is that they do. They're very focused on how they transact their business, and and it's it's perhaps baby steps to try and get them to understand that you know cyber has a role to play in their business. And I mentioned it earlier, you know. All businesses, all industries have, to some extent, over the last three years, realised that they're digitally dependent and that they will have systems that they can't function without, that they will have uh, efficiencies they won't be able to capitalise on, they'll have client expectation to be able to fill things in a certain fashion. Um, so it, it's kind of bringing that to life and, and perhaps being a bit more targeted around the way that we articulate where the risk is for them. Mm, Hans, how important do you feel cyber risk scenario analysis can be in terms of you know making sure companies under ex- understand their exposure. I think it's invaluable because any purchaser wants to know why am I buying it and what you know, for what reasons, and any organisation should be working through scenarios that it could face. The hard market again, put, putting positive spin on it, is that evidence is that the insurance industry has a huge amount of claims experience. And for policyholders' prospective purchases, the key thing that insurers and brokers can do is put values and numbers on those scenarios. And um, working with clients, they're always crying out for, okay, what is this going to cost? I can understand, okay, cyber attack, we've got to turn this computer off or this business function. How much is that going to cost? It's not as if, not, not as a broker or insurer is going to say, right, it's going to cost you exactly X or Y, but it's a two-way process in terms of from our claims data, from our claims experience, it could cost X or Y. And that's a huge value to a uh, prospective purchaser or, or, or renewer of cyber insurance. And um, it's through those scenario uh, planning and um, I, um, concepts that that, that that sales conversation can uh, flow. St- um, Stephen, would you agree on the value of this kind of scenario planning? So I think there's there's pros and cons to it. And it, it very much depends on the, the business and the sophistication of them. I think there's a there's a risk if you go too specific with some of the scenario um, kind of planning or, or modeling that if you if you misjudge it or don't quite get it right, there can just be a thing of, oh, that will never happen to me. Um, and people can just kind of shut down on that. Um, I think if you talk about it in, in the general terms of what are the types of things that would cause issues to your business? What would happen if you couldn't access your email systems? What would happen if you couldn't access your laptop for a couple of days? What would happen if you can't access your main operating system a few days? At that kind of level, that starts bringing to light not necessarily the the how does that happen, but the the what is it that you don't have access to. That starts to focus the mind a bit more on, okay, yeah, that would be a bit of a problem for me. But if you start talking in um, kind of really specific terms of a criminal gang in Russia, brings down your systems for, for 10 days, you can't get to it, never happened to me. We've got excellent security. We're not going to be a target. That that invites barriers almost, or they take your data. We don't have any personal data. Um, if you go too specific when try, if, particularly if you're trying in, or in that sales process, I guess, or trying to engage with a customer and make them think about it, going too specific can just lead to objections being raised. I think taking it back to the, what are the impacts 
that would cause the issues for the business and then working backwards from there for me is is a better way of going about it it's also going forward right it's, yeah. it's about getting to think you know what next so if, yeah. you, if you turned up one morning and all your system was encrypted and you're faced with a, a screensaver that says pay us this bitcoin based ransom like we saw with WannaCry and not Petya. it's like well, what do you do next you know if you turned up and your premises on fire you know you know the answer to that what next you'd phone the fire brigade what would you do i'd phone my suppliers i'd phone my staff i'd phone my insurance broker you know I, I, without having that crystallized in a business continuity plan you know what to do next but if you turned up and you're faced with a ransomware it's like what do you do next well, do, do you phone your managed service provider? Do you phone your IT man? Do you do you phone the do you phone your lawyer? Do you phone your insurance broker? Do, do you phone the regulator? Right? Do, do you phone the ICO? Do, do, what what do you do? In what order? Yeah, that's mm. one of my favourite examples. And, and actually, we see so many examples, um, like real life examples, of when people just don't know what to do. People go into a blind panic with these and can actually, a lot of the time, do very much the wrong thing um, with with this. Like with you turn up to your office and it's on fire there's very little that you can do to make it considerably worse aside from throwing a can of petrol on it and i'm sure no one's going to do that but actually the cyber incident there's a hell of a lot of stuff that you can do that can make it exponentially worse calling a regulator without actually going through the right process and working whether you need to do it you know, unplugging things even can be um can be challenging when you then want to go about the investigation process so making sure that there is that um that response plan in place and yeah actually what do we need to do as and when this happens and we talk about um, a lot of our tabletops decision paralysis so as much as making the wrong decision mm. it's not making a decision at all so you then end up with a client that's got their head in the sand and not making those critical decisions and that's again with the cyber insurance is providing those experts to come in and support yeah. the client to uh, make decisions with confidence yeah i think a lot of people underestimate just how stressful and how much of a mental toll being part of one of these incidents um, does take as well and the impact that that has on a business's ability to, to make good decisions in the moment. I feel I feel the three of you have beautifully articulated you know that one of the key benefits of cyber insurance is that pre-loss prevention but also the post-loss services and dealing with that initial shock and paralysis of what the heck do you do when this happens to you and your business you know I, what can insurers and brokers do to make sure businesses understand that those are the key benefits? Is it you continuing to kind of articulate and be vocal about that, those benefits as you just have been? Uh, I, I think that is true. I think, you know, putting a sales hat on for a second, nothing sells like a horror story. So um, better availability of data and claims examples, being able to model that, moving away from the... You know the headline grabbers like you know, British Airways and Marriott and Carphone Warehouse and, and Talk Talk, but but focusing on the the benefit of the, the proactive cost, you know, because it pales into insignificance compared to the reactive cost of doing it wrong. Um, highlighting, as Stephen said, some of the things that can really um, exacerbate the loss um, and cause lasting reputational harm. You know, there will be clients that are dependent on their reputation and understand that the value of the goodwill that that, that reputation holds. Um, and for for the broker community, it, it's about making sure that those examples are relevant, both in size and scale, as well as industry, um, and 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 not dressing it up in in jargon and technical language and trying to confuse the client. It's about being able to make it relevant to their day-to-day -day business so that they see this as our benefit and an extension of their risk management function. 
one of the benefits of, of cyber insurance i think in or one of the things that sets it apart from many other lines of business is i think that businesses get much more engagement from their cyber insurance than they do any other yeah. line of business um yeah, we've spoken about it a couple of times already so far um hans mentioned how in the hard market cycle you know, we've seen these like minimum standards come into play and, and chris you mentioned about um how some insurers are moving towards kind of providing those preventative services and helping to, to walk customers through that and and part of that is then leading towards as and when something happens customers are, are better prepared all round and it's something that we're really focused on on doing as well not just saying actually to a customer no, your your systems aren't quite up to scratch yet but here's how you can do it here's some tools that we can provide you to to help solve some of that here's some of that next level threat intelligence scanning style um, bits and pieces and, and raising that bar overall you know there was a big cry from government for the insurance industry to be helping to raise that bar in the same way that the motor insurance market did with um, thatcher alarms and security devices and things like that how the home insurance market did through um, standardized locking mechanisms and things like that um, and for many years the cyber market couldn't deliver that because the conditions were too soft and too competitive but now we are um, having a um, having a real benefit in terms of improving the, the security of UK PLC in a much smaller way than I would like because of penetration rates being so small. Um, but it's it's something that, as an industry, we have a, a real um, good story to tell around this, how we are helping to improve customers. People look at it from the negative side around how you know, we're being too... Um, too punitive on customers or kind of being too demanding on on what we need but actually most of what the market is looking for isn't rocket science isn't expensive it's it's the basics um the customers are, are needing to do particularly at the really small end um and i don't see that same hand holding that same provision of service that same access to to loss prevention and and the mitigation when something does happen in any in any other line of business, and I think as a market that's something that we that we can and should be be really proud of. I think there's there's more that we can do. Um, I'm I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with where we are, um, where where Aviva is at the minute. I think we can do more and we will do more, um, but by and large, I, I think we do a, a pretty good job. I mean, such such an important um, topic um, given the level of threat. As cyber risk is a transformative risk for society, um, I'm just going to go quickly around all three of you and ask you what's the one thing insurers or brokers can do to speed up, take up of this vital cover? Hands over to you. Actually going to steal what Stephen said earlier, but put the customer first. It's a crisis response product, and as a lawyer... 10, 20 years ago as a commercial litigator and uh, under under liability insurance programs and you didn't really get thanked much because ultimately someone's getting sued and you're there to reduce potentially the, the exposure. Um, as a breach response lawyer for the last 10, 15 years, the number of positive uh, recommendations and feedback and thanks that we and our team have had uh, is off the scale because you're, you're parachuted in that day of an incident and you're helping someone that's not gone through that process before, having sleepless nights, um, taking them through that process, and that's what the cyber insurance market can do. And it's, and as, as Steve said, it's a really customer-focused product. Um, so, you know, focusing everything around the customer, 
emphasizing the service element of the insurance product and it's there uh, uh, to, to support um, those uh, policyholders that experience those incidents. And I think as the claims volumes grow, um, you will see uh, clients that have gone through that process with the benefit of insurance become more public because it's always a presumption that no one wants to talk about the cyber incident that they had and that's why you don't hear about all the positive stories. There's a real cultural shift change. won't be perfect, but much more societal recognition that a company suffering a ransomware attack is a victim in itself rather than five or six years ago. So I think you will see more people emerging saying, actually, do you know what? We had an incident, we had an insurer, the insurer came through, great, great service, really pleased, and I would be absolutely um, you know, recommended to anyone. Um, and those those stories will come through. So customer first and um, that investment will come back uh, in dividends on, on claims side and, and future purchases and renewals. Chris, what, what's the one thing insurers or brokers can do to speed up take-up? Um, uh, the risk of sounding like Tony Blair, I think education, education, education. I think we need to um, better educate clients and we need to make that relevant and highlight you know, the, the direction of travel, the, the threat that, that exists today um, where clients can improve their own exposure to risk and remove some of the low-hanging fruit. I think for brokers, we need to make sure that we are acutely aware and that we're continually up to date. Um, that, that that information doesn't sit with a select few. That, you know, the clue in our business name is specialists, you know, to make sure that we do have specialists that are available that you can access and that you know when there is an opportunity to bring that specialist expertise in, but generally raise the bar in terms of awareness and understanding because this is not... This is not a risk that's exclusive for businesses working in IT, tech, media, professional services. This is relevant for, for all clients across all industries. Um, and it isn't something that we should just be leaving to the, you know, the, the, the millennial or the Gen Zs in our, in our businesses to, to try and articulate and understand we've all got a duty to, to make sure that we invest and we understand this and we can best advise our clients. Stephen, what's your one tip for insurers and brokers to make sure they speed up take up of cyber insurance? Um, don't give up. I think is is what I would say. Um, I think as a market, we're doing all of the right things and we just need to double down on that. Um, and it's a bit of what Hans and Chris have, have both said, like customer first, education, absolutely key. Um, but if I look at what, what we've done in, in recent years, what many of our peers have done in recent years, the, the, the amount of you know, training materials, the amount of literature, the amount of communication that we've put out to customers about this has all been really good the amount of risk management you know that we spoke about earlier that's been developed and delivered all really good how can we make more of it how can we how can we ramp that up a lot more and that's that's my focus for for Aviva for this year and beyond is is how can we make more of that how can we do that job even better how can we support our brokers to have better conversations with their customers how can we make things as easy as possible for customers to to engage with how can we deliver services that continue to be cutting edge and and providing all of that support both pre-loss and post-loss that customers need um we're on the right track it's just doing it even more uh, finally providing that rocket fuel to supercharge yeah, the take-up hopefully the fingers crossed that brings us to the end of this episode of the insurance post podcast I'd like to thank Chris, Stephen and Hans for joining us and sharing their insights on cyber insurance. As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and be sure to make sure you never miss an episode 
by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Make sure you come back next week for a discussion about whether insurers are ready for the Financial Conduct Authority's consumer duty. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital. <laughs>